everyone. Welcome to the Engage and Equip podcast, where we engage with culture and equip the local church in faith and ministry. I'm Ashlyn Phelps, the Communications Coordinator at High Point Church. To accompany our current sermon series, The Next Good Thing, our lead pastor, Nick Gibson, is interviewing different people each week to help us clarify the spiritual sickness we're grappling with right now. These people will take us one step deeper in our understanding of our emotional and spiritual need. Today, Nick is interviewing Adam Mabry, lead pastor of Aletheia Church in Boston, Massachusetts. Adam was one of the people Nick talked to in preparation for The Next Good Thing, so we're excited to hear more from him. As always, if you have any questions or feedback, email us at podcast at highpointchurch.org. Also, we'd love to hear your story of how God is transforming you and healing you during this series. You can email that to us as well at podcast at highpointchurch.org. Thanks for listening. Hey everybody, this is Dick Gibson, and I'm here with Adam Mabry, Senior Pastor, or Lead Pastor, or Sexy Art Pastor, whatever they call it now, at Aletheia oh Church gosh, in Boston. Definitely not that third one. <laughs> uh, in Boston. Uh, so, for those who don't, haven't seen Adam when he's visited High Point, Adam started in Boston about the time I came to High Point, except he didn't have a building, staff, money, or anything like that. And his church is larger than High Point, doing great things, leading people to Jesus. And uh, he's a friend of mine since Florida days. He just came out with a book called stop taking sides yes. and it's going to be selling millions of copies, but um, Prophesy, Adam, before, get, yeah, <laughs> before I get into our topic for today, which is on like pastoring and being a Christian in COVID times and that kind of thing. What's your book about? Uh, actually, my book is about all the horrible things that COVID times are kind of doing to us, all this anxiety and outrage and fear and discontent and how, uh, how um, the, the way we think that gets solved is by, um, is by more information, greater clarity, um, and picking the right side of any particular issue. And actually, most of the time, the Bible's not inviting us to do that. Um, how the Bible is written by a genius and, and often invites us into some really, really odd sounding mysteries and paradoxes. And so the book, in the book, I take nine pairs of doctrines or pairs of truths that feel like they don't go together. And yet the Bible, like, wax them right next to one another and and doesn't do so so that we can sublimate one to another so yeah the book could talk about like uh sovereignty and responsibility or victory and suffering or uh inclusion and exclusion uh politics in the kingdom stuff like that that uh we feel like we we want to and we very often come down very firmly on one side versus the other and um and i don't think uh biblically textually that's what what the bible's inviting us to do most of the time so it's designed to offend and make most people uncomfortable. <laughs> it's great. Great. Thanks, yeah. So uh, we'll have to do a whole podcast on the book, but it's, it's out right now, right? Stop is, Taking indeed. Sides by Adam Mabry. Yeah. What's it called? It's called Stop Taking Sides by Adam Mabry. It, well, uh, the, the subtitle is How Holding Truths and Tension Saves Us from Anxiety and Outrage. So. Cool. All right. Uh, sold wherever books are sold and it is present. Okay. So um, some of the, things we're doing in this series we're doing right now, um, Adam, are relative to building perseverance, building the kind of emotional sanctification necessary for perseverance and love, mm. recognizing that COVID is more like a stress test in terms of its level of horror than like mm. a plague or something. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And yeah. that not only should we, should we need to be the kind of people that can handle COVID, but gosh, uh, Many, many, much, much worse things happen in human experience than, than this. And we should actually probably be uh, preparing ourselves emotionally, spiritually, as human beings to face the sufferings that may come with any of those things, right? So 
you and I talked, um, a good bit of our discussion was about kind of where people were emotionally and what you were doing church-wise to try to minister to people in those times. Mm-hmm. So um, let's talk a little bit about the first and then the second, like like what's going on with people. It's been like at least a month. So you're, I'm sure your thoughts are always evolving, but um, what, so let me, I'm going to quote back to you a couple of phrases you said and let you say some things. I will say this before we get further. The, our last podcast where we discussed the Holy Spirit, it was um, one of our most liked episodes, but it also was one in which some people thought that I maybe talked more than I needed to and could have let you talk more. So I'm going to try to do that uh, this episode, okay? So um, one of the things you said when I talked about where people are at, you said, um, it's not exactly right, but depression is kind of the right zip code, like a nagging hopelessness that we're in a slog. Yeah. Um, what do you think about your own description? Yeah, I agree with me still. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I observe that um, that a, a sense that it's always going to be like this, um, where this is um, this fight for some future that will never never appear. Um, and uh, part of that, I think, is by accident, but part of it, I actually think, is by design. Um, the part by accident is that we just, I mean, we live in such a charmed uh, point in history where, I mean, it, where we have, you know, indoor plumbing in hospitals and uh, don't have to watch people die, which is, you know, relative to human experience across the ages is super unusual. Um, mm-hmm. And praise God that COVID-19 has been far less dangerous and horrible than, you know, the initial predictions. I, I think everyone remembers the you know, millions of people were going to die and, and things like that. And, and that, that by God's grace hasn't borne out. Um, so the, the unintentional part is we, we're not where we were and we're not where we're going to be. And so we're in this, uh, liminal state of like, not quite sure where this is taking us. And most of us, when we enter into, uh, liminality or, or transitional periods, especially uninvited ones, our, our natural reaction is to fight against them, right? Um, we go straight lizard brain. We, and anxiety makes us fight, flight or fight, flee or freeze. <clears throat> and, uh, but, uh, none, none of those in, in this particular instance are, are helpful. That's the accidental part. The, the intentional part is because we're also in this, uh, political moment. I don't know if you heard, but there's a presidential election coming up. I just found out myself. Um, <laughs> oh my, uh, yes. Uh, so it, it seems like there is a strong, um, desire on the part of both political parties, whether you're for or against whomever candidate, um, to keep everyone's uh, anxiety level at at fever pitch in order to motivate them to vote for you know this particular person or that particular person. So, because yeah. turnout yeah. is going to be huge in this election. Yes, that's right. what I that's what I'm told. Um, <laughs> and and uh, I mean, like the and, need, like whoever can get the best turnout has the highest likelihood of winning because the split is so even. Mm-hmm. It, it seems to be the case and and uh but the fuel burning isn't like a vision for the future or a like a positive desire um it, it's it's very much a well if this other person wins then all these terrible things are going to happen so in that way there's a there's an intentionality to keep all of the bad news of the you know the worst economic downturn since 1930 and the worst race relations since 1960 and the worst pandemic since 1914 all at the same time uh to keep that as as horrible sounding as it as it is uh sounding when i describe it that way so um yeah. <laughs> that, that's that was a particularly poignant way to do it i will admit yeah yeah 
Yeah. Yeah. With a, with like a dollop of presidential election on top of it. So yeah. like and that's, now that's a, a Supreme lot. court seat. Oh, right. Yes. Excellent. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Uh, um, so yeah, that, so I think, fun. I think that there are forces that are, that are wanting us to be this stressed out and terrible feeling. Mm-hmm. And we must therefore learn to resist that. Yeah. I think to be a equal worldview offender here, I think that also that there are economic forces for that too, that in order for us to be, oh, yeah, good consumers that corporations have incentives to like get us to watch more movies and still buy stuff. And Mm -hmm. right. And all those are, I don't know that the motivation there is to like make us as scared as possible, but um, there are some people marketing things. Mm -hmm. Trying to make us scared as possible. So, all right. Mm -hmm. It's like the opposite of the spiritual discipline of simplicity. I don't know. Spiritual undiscipline of complexity, maybe, but the, the more, uh, variables we enter into the math equation of our lives, the uh, more we feel like we have to do to solve it, the more stuff we have to buy, more things we have to watch, information we have to consume. And yeah, it's just yeah. chronic anxiety. It's super bad for us. Yeah. So we, we talked about some of the concrete stuff in this, like people actually losing jobs or losing their life or health, people not being able to go to school, like kids, you know, college students wishing they could have a Norwich college experience and they're not. Um, you, one of the things you talked about was an uptick in parental panic. Mm-hmm. Are you still seeing that? I mean, now the school year started, right? So, like, how's that? Wh- what do you think about that? And how are you? Are you guys pastoring that? Um, well, we don't. The, the nature of where our church is is that we don't have a ton of parents of children in school um, because we're a pretty urban church, and so most families don't live exactly where our churches, our congregations meet. Um, but we do have a, a number of them, and um, so. Yeah, there is some unrest within our people. Th- I mean, thankfully, they all seem to be, from my perspective, doing doing okay. I'm seeing it more in my kids' friends and like their parents, and then when I I see my like talk to my friends who aren't in my church. Um, yeah, I, I'm seeing a a panic. Not so much that they're worried about their children, but it's like the same stressors from March and April of last year, last school year, are now with us again. Um, I'm you know we're we're a a parent you know. Or, who is normally expected to go to work and uh, is now also expected somehow to be a homeschool educator um, and uh, or, or some kind of hybrid school educator. And that's not, that's not the social contract bargain that they had made uh, within their family or with, with society. Um, yeah. And, uh, and, and that, that's, I mean, I, that's really hard. It just is, you know, um, for no one's, you know, it's certainly not their fault that it's hard. It just is in fact hard and causing stress. Yeah. 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 yeah we're seeing that, that here. Yeah. We're seeing that here. Like actually, we actually had, we actually sued the County and the state Supreme court to open our schools and have so far been successful. We got a 60 day um, yeah. judgment. And so our, like our school has, you know, kids in school and it's a pain yeah. in the behind. Oh my gosh. Like there's so many like health based things we're doing and it's taken over the entire church and whatever, but um, this yeah. is the service we provide. So, yeah. Um, it's, yeah. it's funny because some of our oldest teachers are the ones most adamant that we should have school, but yes. anyway, um, but we've seen, I've seen that in people, people in our church where they're just kind of like, either I ignore my kids and just let them do virtual school, which is clearly not working in terms mm-hmm. of them learning stuff. Or I try to head, help educate them and then I'm really not working as hard as I need to be. And mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's especially, I mean, there's an inverse correlation between like age and ability for zoom to work because I don't know if you've ever tried to watch a five-year-old in front of zoom. Uh, yeah, it's not, it's not happening. (laughs) Yeah. 
Yeah, you talked about kids being down because they just they like just miss their friends and they're just not yeah. allowed to be. Yeah, around. I mean, like kid. I'm a homeschool dad, right? Like we, we I mean, society thinks people who willingly homeschool their children are like you know crazy neo Amish folks. That that's not why we do it. Um, but yeah, I, I say that to say, you know, our, our our children don't see hundreds and hundreds of other people every day, um, mm-hmm. and uh, and they miss their friends, of course, right? Because you know we're pretty intentional about getting them around their friends, and so. Like, uh, of course, you know, if the homeschool kids are really missing their friends, of course, everybody else is. Um, mm-hmm. And it, it, this is not, this is not the way humans were meant to live. I, I am, I, I wish that there was a way for someone to show like a graphic. I imagine it as like sliders, right? So there's a slider, you know, of, you know, complete safety and zero safety and a slider for complete, you know, emotional health and zero emotional health and a slider for, you know, great parenting setup and bad parenting setup. And, and the expectation that culture seems to have, or at least we we place in our government is like, we, the government should be able to get all of those for us, like at the maximum, you know, safety, maximum education, maximum, you know, maximum on all those. And the reality is that's not possible. So if you slide this, the safety slider all the way to the right, you can, we can do that. We're just all going to be emotionally, you know, disaster. Uh, zones and that's kind of what we're seeing um we're seeing that just in terms of like like we have a you probably have this we have a a list of um counselors mental health professionals uh psychologists psychiatrists that we've um we've vetted as a church and then when someone wants to go see a, a mental health professional we we give them that list as a place to begin and everyone on that list is like got got a you know waiting list for you know for months and months and months so we're seeing the, this kind of stuff and no one seems to be taking into account like that stuff that really matters or, or like the, in, I mean, there's a massive increase in domestic violence. There's a massive increase in alcohol consumption and, you know, yeah, y- yeah kids are less likely to get COVID, but in some cases they're also much more likely to get beaten and that's not good. And, and that doesn't, that, that's a mature conversation. We don't seem to be able to have as a society it bums me out. Yeah. Um, one of the things that you talked about when we talked was that, um, our response to this hasn't been very human. I think that's what you meant, like that we have we've dealt with this as though the only thing that mattered was epidemiology, mm-hmm. and just like whether or not people got this disease or not, and whether or not they went to the hospital for it or not, mm-hmm. as opposed to the state of our inner working economy, people's capacity to have livelihoods, what this effect would have on people's family lives, marriages, mm-hmm. and parent-child relationships, domestic violence. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we seem to not take a interweighted approach to yeah. this very well. Yeah. And I, I I mean I'm not terribly sure why. Um but we don't. Yeah, I, don't you think it was like it's an election year and that whatever the death number is going to be was going to be like an albatross that was going to get hung around somebody's neck? I guess so. Um uh and it seems to be that they're, you know, passing it around. Uh, I mean, but that's, I mean, that's certainly what I've observed from the challenging candidate in this is like sure. everything that went bad this year is the fault of the person who was in office, which is, I think it's pretty normal for a presidential candidate for a, a candidacy. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I guess so. I just, I'm shocked at how much we still buy all that, you know, cause I'm uh, perhaps, perhaps it's easier for me because I, I don't particularly like either one of the people running for office. <laughs> and so I feel very politically homeless. And I'm like, why, why are we, why are we all buying? Why is this obvious fallacy being so readily embraced by so many people? And, you know, as if any president, like regardless of who they are, uh, could sit 
in the Oval Office and direct viral spread. I mean, I, I'm sure there are things that this president and any other president could do better. I don't mean that, but like um, the need to, uh, well, take a side, really. And I, I recognize that in a world of complexity, we all want simple answers. But at some point, you would expect the adults in the room to be like, yeah, there aren't simple answers. This one's tough. <laughs> I think that's the best simple answer that can be offered. That there yeah. aren't simple answers. Yeah. Yeah. They end up, you end up coming to fairly simple conclusions, though. I mean, either you shut down schools or you don't. Like, there's some of the, you end up with these kind of moderately binary questions. Yeah. Or, I mean, speaking, you, speaking of somewhat binary questions, one of the things that you said was that you thought it was going to be pretty important to open up churches, mm-hmm. um, even if it's kind of lame. Yes. Uh, well, so uh, one of the things that uh, sort of like, uh, biblical or gospel believing Christians have noticed uh, is there has been this kind of back and forth between two national evangelical leaders, Andy Stanley and John MacArthur, where one is in California and has been shut down by the state, sued to open and so uh-huh. forth, and has opened, stayed open against court dictate. And then the other one's like, look, we're not open until at least 2021. This is just part of loving our neighbor. Jesus wants us to love our neighbor. Um, Mm-hmm. And uh, they're pretty opposite views by people who have probably pretty similar views of what the scriptures are and who Jesus yeah. was and is. Mm-hmm. Are you? Do you have people that divided? I'm sure you have people that divided in your church. Oh yeah, totally. Um, yeah, to and stay, what's interesting to open up is a is treason against God, and to stay closed is treason against God. Yeah, yeah. What's interesting is how much that debate is just an internecine new testament ethical debate like what's the best way to love my neighbor because i guarantee you that both those men are like yeah i want to love my neighbor well and represent jesus well to my community and and honor god like i i have no reason to expect that either one of those guys are like you know not doing that or or not motivated by that um and uh and yeah we we've seen that in in our church i'll say for our congregations we we can't keep up with the demand to reopen because we need more, like, volun- as you've probably experienced, uh, it requires a, a more volunteers and uh, volunteers trained to do things they've never, like, they didn't used to do. So it used to be like, hey, fold the chairs around and, like, do kids' church. And now it's like, hey, sanitize things according to state standards, which is a different, like, you got to teach them, you got to train them. And so um, I know that w- we are, like, behind a few weeks uh, or maybe even a month behind the demand uh, just because of our, we've got to retrain volunteers and find them and then find volunteers that feel comfortable doing that stuff because we can't, you know, make anybody, well, volunteers, you can't make anybody do anything, but you know what I mean? It's, it's, uh, it, it's not like we can just open church because we're trying, we're trying very hard again to love our neighbor and abide by the, you know, and obey Romans, um, uh, 16 and, and, and try to, 13. uh, 13, sorry, Romans, Romans 16 doesn't exist. Uh, obey Romans 13 and like do, a. Romans uh, 16 does exist. So I'm sorry to keep correcting you. All right, what is going on with me? <laughs> I just preached this book of the Bible too. Uh, this is oh, bad sorry. news. Um, uh, uh, you've been, you've been this reading is what, This is what COVID The audience should know that Adam is working on two doctorates, has four children, and is pastoring a church, and it's 2020 for heaven's sake. So we we'll, we'll yeah. give you some slack on that. It's fine. It's okay. Great. I appreciate that. Grace, Grace. Um, uh, but if you could, after you're done with this, get on the internet and cancel me anyway, that'd be great. That, then that we'd, uh, we'd come full circle. <laughs> um yes romans 13 in the book of romans which has only 16 chapters and um and uh yeah just trying to as much as possible do do what we're asked um uh yeah we are finding the gathering to be really important and um 
And even though my team has done an amazing job at thinking of creative ways, I mean, to get people together, not in church. I mean, one of the ideas is uh, uh, some of our staff came up with, it was like a like a pop-up church watch party box, you know, and, and like, you know, to have people that you're comfortable with over in your, in your house to, to watch a service. Um, it, nothing quite replaces the gathering of the saints. Um, it's probably why we're commanded to do it. Yeah. Well, what about uh, if you have somebody who says, yeah, you listen, there's, there are Christians in like China and North Korea that can't meet, but they're still the church. Mm -hmm. Clearly you can be the church without meeting. Uh, Why treat this as so absolute that you should obey the government, especially since the biblical command to obey the government is also given in absolute terms in places like Romans 13. Do you think that, the that there is an imperative in scripture comparable to the imperative to obey the government if the government says you can't meet like yeah i mean yeah like in hebrews where it says don't neglect the gathering of the saints um and it's not quite right to say that churches in oppressed nations can't meet they they do meet they meet to the best of their possible ability and i guarantee you that they have i mean i know because i know many of them uh they, they they would love to meet uh in one big room um that would be their great desire and their hearts ache for it um and so they do what they can and they take great joy in what they can um, uh, and what they're able to do. I think what's challenging is that, you know, li- living in a, a government in which you are a participant in the governance um, is mm-hmm. not something that the New Testament directly anticipates. So when it, 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 you know, gives the injunction to obey the governing officials, well, the system of government that we have is that their, their authority is you know, derived by, by our consent. Um, and so th- that mm-hmm. that does create a little bit of a, a strange, you know, yeah. ethical loop-de-loop to figure out. And I'm not a political theologian, so I'm not going to take too many cracks at that. But uh, it, it's definitely different. Um, and so, you know, I mean, I can imagine a more draconian way. Maybe my state could have asked us to to do stuff, and me being much more like John MacArthur and saying, "No, like we're we're getting together." In fact, I know some pastors who feel that way about our state and are doing it anyway. Um, and then I can also. I, totally imagine um i mean i have i have friends in andy stanley's church i have friends in uh like uh, the hillsong world they're not they're not physically meeting until 2021 everything for them uh at least uh on the east coast is online um uh yeah which is you know interesting i it's nice to not have to give an i don't have to give an account for any of them so therefore i don't feel (laughs) i have a uh a need to to make judgments about what they're doing how is how is um how is your shepherding changed? Like how how is trying to trying to care for the people who God has given you charge over? You're you're doing worship somewhat differently. Mm-hmm. You talked mm-hmm. about like changing your worship service to make it as participatory as possible. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, you know the the shepherding part of pastoral ministry uh, has always been my personal weakest muscle, um, mm-hmm. and so. Uh, the thing that I am observing uh, that is going well, especially when those more gifted in it than I am are doing it, is the is little things, um, phone calls, um, socially distant gatherings. Uh, you know, for me, it's having people over to my house around my fire pit. You know, and keeping the, the chairs comfortably apart. You know, um, and mm-hmm. uh, and so I've I've had a lot. My wife and I have had a lot of people uh, in in our backyard. Uh, just sitting around a fire pit so that they feel, you know, relatively good and, and we feel okay uh, about it. So uh, it, it, it's a lot. It, it's funny that in a 
period that we're supposed to be more socially distant, we've actually been more physically present with more people, it seems. Mm-hmm. And so I think it, it dials the, the need for a physical presence. Like text messages and emails mean way less. Um, but phone calls and showing up and helping people um, seems to mean uh, way, way more. That's my observation. Yeah. Is that your observation? You're better at yeah. that stuff than me. <laughs> uh, arguably, but uh, yeah, yeah, I think I think so. I think that's definitely the case. Hmm. Um, one of the things you said, not necessarily impugning your own church, but like that, what people are, what people, especially pastors, are finding out during this time, is that people are kind of bad at maintaining their own spiritual life. Like oh yeah. That, that when church kind of got berserked on here and like we didn't have it or you had to do it online or sometimes some some churches weren't ready to do it online people just kind of fell apart spiritually mm-hmm. just yeah poof yeah you or know, they're I, falling I, apart now you know i was quite embarrassed about how but by how much that happened to me uh i did not realize mm-hmm. just personally even as a pastor um i uh, i think i explained it to my congregation this way i didn't realize how much i was uh I was living off the secondhand smoke of just having a lot of church events because you can't come to church four times on a Sunday or teach a lot of classes that force you to get in the Bible and not derive some benefit from it. Like just amongst God's people a lot and in prayer a lot, even if your prayers are entirely for other things or in, you know, in moments of singing and worship, like that's just going to do something positive, you know? And when all that's taken away, what I, I I liken to to bandwidth, I, I didn't realize how, how, much the bandwidth of my own personal walk with Jesus had shrunken um, mm-hmm. and was no longer sufficient for the, uh, for the, uh, for the task. And so, yeah, that, that was shocking to me and uh, definitely required the, um, some immediate, uh, immediate um, renovation for me. So yes, I've totally seen that in our people. It, so it, if I remember right from our conversation, you were like, so that's what I decided to do my fall series on. Like we're focusing on yeah. how to be with God. Mm-hmm. Yep. And, what, and we've, like, we've still been, yeah. Yeah, in, in fact, so in, in addition to that particular um, series, uh, and I've had a lot more people speak into it, um, especially like, you know, there, there's uh, no one of us, no one pastor, no one preacher is good at like every way of connection with, with God, right? So um, I can talk about meditation and Bible study and and. and some of the disciplines others can talk about prayer someone else can talk about fasting um or or um you know experiencing the the communicative like voice of the lord stuff like that um mm-hmm. and then we've uh we tacked onto that like a week of prayer and fasting just to actually put into practice some of the stuff um and we actually have elongated that series um added additional weeks to it that we didn't anticipate in the beginning so um probably the most um the most helpful thing that we've done is to take the, uh, the, the principles that we're learning that we can just, just really simply practice them in our, in our groups throughout the week. So, yeah. And are most of these things, what maybe pastors would consider traditional church, church, traditional spiritual disciplines, like reading the Bible, praying, meditating on scripture and the providences of your life. Yeah. Uh, being open to hearing the, voice or the urgings of god mm-hmm. being attuned to conscience mm-hmm. 
are, are they yeah. mostly individualized, like like the private disciplines, or do you t- do you talk a lot, good bit about the the public disciplines or social? We're disciplines? we're doing more of the private ones because we it it seems like those are the ones that are really weak. You know, yeah, I've called for you. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. Agree. Um, so th- that's that's mainly what we've been uh, what we've been focusing on. Yeah. You've had your elders like call people to pray for them. How's like how are those like are they reporting that they're that's useful that it matters uh, to people? Yeah, yeah. I mean, for the most part, um, it started as a uh, as a response to you know people were feeling um, lonely or either very upset. Uh, about something and so it started as a uh, actually as a flag from me uh hey hey guys i can't i can't do this please help me and um and they've actually uh turned it into a little bit of a uh you know qualitative research sort of um past slash pastoral care moment where they were trying to get the, the 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 pulse of the church a little bit more accurately along with you know serving people a little bit more faithfully than we we've been so yeah okay um anything else on covid like what 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 have you learned like anything else on like just like just uh, take a minute and be a pastor speak directly to the people listening most of these people are a lot of our professionals they live in places like madison you know semi-urban suburban um but they've experienced the stuff we've talked about at this point in the ordeal so to speak what what kind of words would you have for them to support their perseverance and love? I think what I would encourage your people to do and my people to do is first reflect on what this has revealed to you about your own spiritual vitality. Um, and and be honest with yourself. Like, wow, this has gone really well. I mean, some people have reported like, yeah, I just get so much more time in prayer. Praise God, that's awesome. Um, most people that I've spoken to, it's been much more like, this is revealing some huge gaps. Um, and they're pretty discouraged about it. So the, the next thing I would do is, I, w- I would encourage them is after reflection, don't, don't allow discouragement or condemnation to come in. Um, the Bible says that God disciplines those that he loves, that he tests us, um, and that his discipline and his testing isn't so that he can laugh at us and tell us how bad we are at stuff, but so that he can grow us. You know, testing is is refining. Pruning is painful, but it's to make us more fruitful. Um, and so for, I know for me, that's what this season has very much felt like, a refining, a, re- a pruning sort of thing. And, um, and so I would say resist. Uh, resist the voice of the accuser that says, oh, you're this terrible Christian. Why do you even bother? Um, um, I would also say resist externalizing. Uh, some of us are more, you know, uh, I'm more inclined to externalize the, the stresses of this time. So, oh, it's the government's fault or, oh, it's this person's fault or, oh, it's this, you know, this particular kind of, you know, guy in my church or, you know, to, to find to find someone uh, upon whom to blame what I'm actually pretty bummed out in myself about. Um, and then like allow the Holy spirit to come and, and renew you. Um, take some, like take, take some time to do that. Uh, and to remember that like all of this is by grace and God means to make us into the kind of people who could endure through, through hard times. Um, 
but endurance is really hard. <laughs> like that's why a few people do it. And it's even harder for us. I mean, because we don't have, I mean, we don't have to, uh, there, there's very little relatively speaking that we really have to endure. Um, you know, when compared to other ages of you know, humans just within like the last couple hundred years. Um, and so that makes us lazy. Uh, why would we want to endure stuff if we don't have to? It's not pleasant. Um, but there's a kind of a place that we can only get to by means of that endurance. I mean, in Lamentations 3, the scripture says um, that, you know, in the midst of all this, like, horrible, horrible stuff, that um, that the safest place for hope is in God, like, ho- hoping, locating hope in God and not not in, like, the future we're trying to get or in the um uh, that's there here it is lamentation 324 the lord is my portion therefore i will hope in him um that, that's quite a thing for whomever wrote lamentations to have said given what lamentations is contending with like the destruction of god's people and their place and the temple that's horrifying and he's saying okay the lord is my portion Therefore, I will hope in him. I've been asking God, okay, Lord, apparently my hope has been located in all kinds of different things. Help me locate my hope in you. And so maybe that would be the the third step, the third piece of advice I would give your listeners is um, if you've reflected and you've seen like, oh, I got some big gaps. Don't don't get condemned and don't externalize it. Um, You know, repent, turn away from that stuff. And um, and allow God to relocate your hope in, in him in. And I don't mean that in like a airy fairy sort of emotional way. I mean, like concretely, um, maybe that means we need to simplify some stuff. Um, that's the spiritual discipline I've been most convicted by. Uh, but what, what can get simpler? So yeah, th- those are the things that I'm encouraging my, uh, my friends to do. And I would encourage your people to do as well. Cool. All right. Last segment on your dissertation. <laughs> Which one? Um, uh, PhD one on the Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. What are you learning? <laughs> what have you learned since last time? What's the, what the, what are some of the biggest ahas from this research? I'm, um, I'm shocked at how much I don't, I'm like conditioned not to see the Holy Spirit in the entire Bible. So, I tend to, you know, that broadly reformed um, categories of thought are intensely Christological. Who is Jesus? What did he do? You know, what, what did Jesus accomplish? What was his nature? And the Holy Spirit is like this nice, like tinsel on the Christmas tree of Christology. Um, and and I, am, I am freshly like gobsmacked by how intentionally the authors of the Bible were, uh, were showing that Jesus' ministry was uh, entirely by, through, for um, the Spirit, and how that is meant to very intentionally map onto our self-understanding. Um, so currently, I'm I'm in the chapter of my dissertation where I'm looking at the prophetic ministry of Christ, which is like classically thought about, like his teaching and his uh, representation of the intentions of God. To us, and we tend to think about teaching as this very like academic thing. And oh yeah, we should probably pray before the lecture, pray before the sermon, and um, and how uh, how 
backwards and um, anemic that is compared to the way uh, the authors of the Bible talk about the even the teaching ministry of Jesus. Like in the in the call narratives of uh, of the Synoptics, how they are, it, it's very obvious. Like Jesus is. The synoptics are Matthew, Mark, and Luke. For those yes. who don't know that, yes. So, so Jesus is um, filled with the Spirit. Right, the, the the dove comes upon him, and then um, it says that he's sent into the wilderness. Um, Mark Mark's gospel says that he's like kicked out. It's very strong language into the wilderness, and then uh, uh, and then how uh, by by the Holy Spirit, and then he comes back full of the power of the Holy Spirit. And those three like very intentional things all precede anything he ever teaches and any miracle he ever does. And then how at the very end of the Gospels, again, tons of Holy Spirit language. And of course, you get spirit language in the middle. Um, but we tend to like not know that the Gospel writers really intentionally like putting a giant candy wrapper on this gift of Jesus um, and the, and the wrappers of the Holy Spirit. Um, so I've been gobsmacked by how much I just have been conditioned not to see him there, not, not to see the Holy Spirit there and trying to see the Bible with fresh eyes. How, what do you see as the significance of that? In our last interview, you um, you said a few things critical of the Bethel movement, but one of their main teachings is to see Jesus either more or very intentionally as a man filled with the Holy Spirit. That yeah, he is that's re- ex- the expression of perfect humanity as a man filled with the Holy Spirit. Um, yes. th- do you feel like that's upticked in your study? Um, well... I think that the way they teach it tends to be just like a, a, a redux of adoptionism. Um, adoptionism is a, is a heresy that uh, the church, you know, put, put out of style in, I think the second century. And it was trying to explain who Jesus was by saying, Oh, he was a, he was just a normal guy and the Holy spirit came upon him and he became like this kind of Herculean uh, adopted by God sort of thing. Right. Uh, person. You're and, like Psalm uh, two, like, like you're my son today. I have begotten you. Like I, yeah. I have made, like, just as Solomon was made, David was made king by God. Yes, yes. <clears throat> Jesus, the man, is made the son mm-hmm. by the pouring out of the Spirit. Yeah. As opposed yeah, to him being the son from eternity past, the second person of the triune God. Right. And so what I see in, in the Bethel movement is is kind of a going backwards um, rather than additive. Um, so what we want to do, obviously, is is get the, the last two millennia of Christology been pretty good. I have no desire to, to go in a to go and fix any of it. Um, it's just taken, it's very hard to keep the Trinity in mind uh, because it's, uh, Trinity is such a non, not relatable um, idea to us. Um, but the cash value of that, I think, is that as Jesus lived, he, he, he did everything that he did in order to bring about that kind of life for us. And, and, you know, we can, we get tastes of it in fits and starts now, and it will be obviously in, in the resurrection. Um, but all of that from a renewed mind to the ability to study the Bible correctly, to new character, to power to endure, power to love my neighbor. Yes. Power for signs and wonders, but for Pentecostals, it tends to only be about signs and wonders. There's all this other stuff that isn't an intensely. And it seems to me intentionally, um, brought about by the Holy spirit. And when we neglect him in our in our practice and in our invitation, we, we, we miss out on something that he wants to do. Um, I think, I think part of the response to that for some of these folks on the cutting wisps of some of these movements is 
that's all that that's so boring yeah. uh like it, yep. you know it's sort of like so basically what you're saying is all these things the bible speaks about that we pursue that happen in a very non-fanciful way like there's nothing mystical about it we just sort of like do them they happen mm-hmm. and then we assume by faith the holy spirit has done them mm-hmm. as opposed to like somebody who like gets healed and we're like mm-hmm. oh my gosh or like you get this really profound intense feeling that mm-hmm. god is speaking to you or this profound sense of adoration and worship and those feel like something is happening they are yes. dynamic in that way yes um and that that's what people tend to be interested in mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. right and what you're saying is yeah well i mean sure but the holy spirit can do things that you find interesting you don't find interesting like what do you know like mm-hmm. better Very to much. better to believe in the holy spirit than than limit what you think he's doing Absolutely. And, and it would be, I guess it's, I, I want to say it's very alien to the authors of scripture to locate the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the purely internal, emotional, and experiential. They would have seen that and gone, uh, no. Because if that were true, then no one would have really written much about his public ministry, right? Um, and, and yet, here he is all throughout the Bible, um, intensely involved in creation and maintenance of providence and the calling of every prophet and everything they ever said and the anointing of every king and uh the ministry of jesus and and the calling of the church and the way we all get saved and the way we're all going to get raised um and so if nothing else to to become aware of those realities um that that the same powerful spirit that you know was there when the words of creation were spoken uh is the same person of the godhead who is most with us right now, um, most present with us right now. Um, and to neglect that idea is to uh, severely handicap our ability to experience God, yeah, personally, but also see him experienced in the world more more uh, corporately. What do you think is the consequence of the difference between, so like if, if, I, if somebody said, um, Nick, is if I'm a believer, is Christ with me? And if I said to them, if I'd said them, yes, in that the mind of Christ is everywhere present and with all of his believers and therefore with you. And then the person said, but he's not literally with me, like right here. And I was to be like, well, that I'm not sure that category works with God, that spatial mm-hmm. location category. But one of the ways Jesus talked about the spirit is that he would be in you, with you upon his departure spatially. Mm-hmm. Um, but then if they said, well, what's the difference between Jesus being with me, like knowing me, like seeing me, mm-hmm. but not being quote with me, right. But can order any aspect of creation after his own word. So he's with me in that sense to the Holy spirit being with me, but I can't feel him. Right. What's the difference? between Christ being with me non-spatially as the risen Lord, but still ordering creation as God and the Holy spirit being with me. If I can't feel him with me, right. It it seems like there's no additional payoff there. Mm. Why should it make me so glad that the Holy spirit is with me and even in me? If Jesus is with me, like, like what's the difference? Like why be so Trinitarian about that? Why not just say, you know, God's with us, just he's with us. You know, he's like, he sees us, he knows what's going on. He can order providence. He can change things in a moment. He can touch us personally. Yeah. 
Why does the fact yeah. that it's the spirit matter? So it's a good question. Why is it so strange to think about? And what is the importance of the spirit of Jesus being with us or the, the Holy Spirit or is God with me? And how do I think about that? Um, so Michael Heiser proposes a, an answer to this because there's a strange verse uh, in uh, the epistles of Peter where he's like, um, he, he talks about um, the spirit of Christ, like very directly. There are a few of these in the New Testament. The Holy Spirit is referred to as the spirit of Christ. And you're like, now, is that two different spirits? Are we, what are we talking about? But Jesus said very clearly uh, in Matthew 28 that he, Jesus, would be with us. But he also said very clearly in that same gospel that he was sending the, the, the comforter, the, the paraclete, the one to come alongside us and advocate for us to be with us. Um, and so th- there's some confusion here. It feels like the Bible is equivocating. But if it is equivocating, it's equivocating in the same way it does in the Old Testament. And this is Heiser's proposal. I don't know what I think about it yet, but it's interesting at least. He calls it um, the two Yahwehs of the Old Testament, where there's, there's God, that, like we all think of, God, you know, invisible spirit being talking. And then there's this like, angel of the Lord who shows up, but is often worshiped as God. And some theologians call this, you know, a theophany, um, or it's a pre-incarnate Christ. And he wants to say, uh, yeah, basically that's, that's the second person of the Trinity showing up bodily. Um, and yet being referred to as God and, but he's obviously not, but he is. And there's this, uh, yes and no associated with that. And so he's basically saying, just like the old Testament does that the new Testament's doing that with, with Jesus and his spirit. Now, um, why why does that matter? Well, it matters because the Bible's trying to tell us something about what God's like and uh, that, that God is um, Trinitarian, which is really, really important for a whole bunch of reasons. Um, and that uh, the way we talk about God is, um, well, multivalent. It's not God just as God, nor is it just Jesus um, that we should be talking about, um, but we should be talking about the Holy Spirit. And so when we talk about the Holy Spirit's with usness. We are talking about Jesus being with us because that's how Jesus said he would be with us. And he, in fact, said that it would be better that his spirit was with us than if he were physically present. Because the reality was in the earthly ministry of Jesus, he was only ever often around 12 guys and only really, really investing in three of them. And the fact of the matter is, if, if Jesus physically was present with us uh, in the way that he was, none of us would get any airtime with Jesus. Um, He sent his spirit to be with us so that we would uh, experience like everything Paul said we would experience, the spirit of adoption, um, the the sense, the internal sense that I am in fact um, in the family of God and that his love is, you know, shed abroad in my heart and and all those other benefits. And yes, the cool supernatural stuff um, as well. And so consciousness of that fact is actually seems to be important if for no other reason than that Jesus said it was really, really important. Yeah. Great. Good, good response, Nick. <laughs> yeah. I, you know, I, I just, I don't, I'll take it. We'll talk about this for like 41 minutes if we get too far into it. But I, I think the general part of my fear is I've read a bunch of Trinitarian theology and there's a certain kind of way people talk about it that makes it feel so academically interwoven that there's something about it psychologically where it, like it loses its feeling of reality. Mm-hmm. It's like, it's kind of like that the human mind is so focused on pictorial representations and mm-hmm. like barely 
like we're used to talking about God in analogies, right? Well, mm-hmm. so he, the, colloquially, we'll say metaphors, right? We, you know, God is our Father, and God is this, right? And, and we're com- kind of comfortable colloquially with the analogical metaphor, the like the analogy between the two. It's kind of like mm-hmm. this. What's God like? He's kind of like this. Mm-hmm. But then, if you try to press forward, like as an academic theologian, and be like, well, can we describe God more accurately than that, right? Mm-hmm. And we press in. I think there's two difficulties. One is maybe the analogies don't translate. Like maybe mm-hmm. that maybe you really can't get much farther than the analogical that God has given us. Right. That was like kind of kind of Wesley's view, John Wesley's view. Mm-hmm. But the second is is like there's something about how the human heart feels that when you talk about things in a certain way, it stops feeling them. You know, it's kind of like talking about how you like why you love your wife like very psychoanalytically it doesn't yeah. do much for her, you know what i mean she just go oh you love me so much because you can describe it like that you know it's yeah, kind of like totally. you know if you just say baby my heart's just gonna burst with how much i care about you right like that's more than a dissertation to her you know like if, if talking yeah, a certain totally. kind of way and so sometimes i i get worried because like at one level i want like the people listening who are like, you know, churchgoers and Christians and they love God and they want to know God and say, well, let me describe exactly how this all works as best as I can possibly understand it, giving years of my life to my, you know, to, to, to understanding it exactly, exact, as exactly as I can. And the trade-off between the further insight that really can produce and the, like the demystification, the like, getting people to the point where they realize what they're believing in when they believe in God is an analogy Hmm. and realizing that it's in some sense, just an analogy and they're never going to get more than that probably in this life. Mm -hmm. And that's really demoralizing because like, wait, when I believe in God by these metaphors, I'm not literally believing exact. And I'm like, well, I don't know. <laughs> it's like these are the yeah. analogies God gives us in his word. It's how he's spoken and shown himself. Mm-hmm. Father, son, spirit, um atonement, propitiation, sacrifice. Warrior, you're a like king of hosts, king, shepherd. You know what I mean like mm-hmm. all of the creator, right? And like yeah. some of these are seem to be like more literal than others. Totally. Some are fairly literal in, like so one of my concerns, I think this is where theological liberalism kind of goes awry in some ways, is that it gets so it tries to get past the the ministry of analogy. And in doing so, it so demystifies, demythologizes, so that it doesn't believe in the living core of the metaphor and analogy anymore. In yeah. the sense that like they're like, yeah, it's just it like it becomes just a metaphor. It's no longer like a metaphor. Do you remember, like in the in the line of the witch in the wardrobe, there was a section where um, the witch kills Aslan, and the table breaks, and mm-hmm. Aslan comes back to life, right? And he says to the children, and they screw this up in the movie because they called it a deeper interpretation, but um, Aslan says there was a deeper incantation, that like mm-hmm. there was a spell beneath the spell, that when you did the first spell, it incanted the second spell, and it was mm-hmm. the deeper spell that broke the table and made time run backwards, and like. There's something about the mystery of God's analogy that the analogy connects us to the living real. Mm-hmm. And you only can connect with the literal 
the literal post-analogical, academically described whatever. Yeah, totally. By means of believing through the analogy that God gives, that he works with and that he is happy with. Yeah. And that if you demythologize it, if you if you demystify it too much and you try to get beyond the analogy, you can get to the point where you believe it's just a metaphor and there is nothing really behind it besides your psychology and people lose their faith because they mm. can't cope with that level of complexity. I but you've taken from it. them, you kind of take from them the ability to simply believe the analogy mm. by calling it an analogy. And then it like it's like, well, if it's just an analogy, then what are we doing? It's not even real. Or it's just a metaphor, so it could mean anything. And you're like, no, that's that's actually not how it works. But they can't, it's you know, like sometimes how you try to explain something to someone and they end up not believing it at all. It's mm. like, okay, let me explain how the coronavirus works. And you explain to them, they go, that's so preposterous. I don't even think there's a coronavirus. Mm. Like that's how that's how the human heart kind of responds when things get too complexified in a certain kind of way. Mm-hmm. And sometimes I get concerned about that in my theology and how I explain it to people, even very intelligent, like college educated people. Yeah. I, that's There's something real. about religious belief that it does that. Yeah. I, it's a strange thing about the text of the Bible that, I mean, it was written by bronze age peasants to, you know, uh, you know, Roman era, you know, Hellenistic Jews and like that's it and and it was written to people largely illiterate largely very poor nothing like we are and isn't it always the case that the best kind of teacher is the one who can who understands all that stuff like gets all that academic stuff and can say it even more simply and more beautifully and actually like embodies it more simply and more beautifully um I think that's yeah. what I'm after because the Bible is simultaneously written by, you know, really simple people, but it's also inspired by the Holy Spirit and and is exactly what God wanted written down, which means it's therefore infinitely mineable, right? And so you can get lost in the coolness of the thing itself and miss the thing that it's pointing to. But evangelicals, you know, people who believe the Bible mustn't worship it. Uh, that's that's a very dangerous thing. Um, there are a lot of people who worship the Bible and don't believe God or stop believing in God because the Bible the Bible's really cool. It's really it's really neat, uh, narr- narratively, uh, theologically, um, historically. But, philosoph- like, but it's don't really you think cool. like? But Adam, on a, like on a deeper level, in terms of the human spiritual psyche, right? Like we are in some ways worshiping a conception of God that we believe is pretty dang close to God. Sure. And when we, if we get to thinking that like, it's not very close, whether that opens us up to something much more amazing to realize that like the things God has spoken and shown about himself are good and true about him, but Mm -hmm. we should be very careful to extrapolate them and all the ways we think we can and so on, because our conceptualization of God is probably horrifically primitive compared to the reality. And we, and we should sure. have this kind of profound humility in handling the metaphors and analogies that he gives us, right? As opposed totally. to the reaction of like, well, I guess there's nothing to all this. Like, yeah. you know what I mean? That like, your conception's well, that wrong. Be, that would be like doing this. So, I mean, I've been married for 16 years. Hope and I have known each other for 21 years. Okay, that's how long we've been together. 
in many ways, I feel like I'm just starting to get to know her. And mm -hmm. she's a human, like a, just like me, like we're both people. And still, like just the other day, she told me something and I was like, huh, I never knew that about you. Or I hadn't thought about you in that way. I hadn't seen you from that light. And it like, it had all these wonderful downstream emotional effects of like, oh man, you're really great. And I love you. And, and also you're more complex and I need to respond to you a little bit differently. And, and she's just like a, a person. <laughs> and so if we're going to say that the complexity of the analogies get our eyes off God, well, then we're going to have to, if we're going to be honest, then we have to stop believing in people, <laughs> other people, because people, mm -hmm. just other, other persons are really, really uh, complicated. And, and, you know, even when you read, like, you know, pick your top five books on pop psychology to try and understand what a human is, like, those are all just metaphors and, and templates that we're mapping onto this thing called the human being. Now, if that's the case for us, and we can like study us, of course, it's going to be that way for God. But that doesn't mean we don't know him or we don't know him rightly. I mean, yeah, I think Francis Schaeffer said you can know God truly without knowing God exhaustively. Yeah, no one knows God exhaustively except himself. That's part of the fun, right? Piper pointed out that, you know, that, that, that only the God of the Bible, and maybe this brings us full circle back to Trinitarian theology, only a Trinitarian deity could be the kind, could conceivably be the kind of being that would be infinitely interesting 10 trillion years into forever. And you're like, oh, wow. And you discover something about God such that it, it makes that not a living hell. Because if we were discovering some created thing, eventually, We'll exhaust it. Um, but, but with God, it's not going to be that way. And so part of the adventure of figuring him out on this side of the veil will be continued on the next one. I'm not, I don't believe that the Bible anywhere teaches me that I'm going to like get a matrix download of God's mind, you know, and why he did everything that he did. And I know we always like to say, well, you know, when I get to heaven, I'm going to, you know, then I'll finally know why God did X, Y, and Z. And I'm like, I don't think that not sure. what the Bible teaches me. I mean, I, I hope there's some questions we can answer. But uh, that's part of the adventure of what a forever kind of future with God means. And yeah. I find that really exhilarating. And so hopefully I, the study I think God a lot of our questions, we're going to be able to reason through in about 20 minutes in heaven. Like you take away the flesh and the sinful nature and you get a bunch of people together that don't have to deal with that anymore. And then you just ask each other the same questions that are hugely difficult for us right here. And we'll be like, Oh yeah, it's probably that. Yeah. And it's like 10 minutes, you know, you're like, you've been in heaven 10 minutes. You're like, yeah. Yeah. Okay. None of those questions are interesting. You'll just, but you didn't realize they weren't because they were mm -hmm. so real to you here, you know? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. All right. One last question. Okay. This will be the last question. Okay. All right. So in terms of understanding how the Holy Spirit functions, right? Um, within like, like the Bible believing, maybe American theology, revivalist theology, there's this kind of idea of, Nate, grace against nature right that like we are our, we are ourselves and then like the spirit comes in and has to work against all this stuff because the flesh has to work against the flesh and it has to work against us basically in order to make us like christ within the catholic and orthodox tradition you tend to get more of this like nature perfects grace or grace perfects nature right mm -hmm. that like we're made in god's image right and like nature is good and so what happens is that the holy spirit comes and works with nature and perfects it. Now, you could easily easily say a both and to that, right? Like the flesh has to be killed. If that's what you mean by nature, then it's grace against nature. If you're talking about the image of God in human beings, well, that is exactly what God is renovating and restoring. So grace with nature, grace perfects nature. Mm -hmm. Like in one sense, it's not a very hard thing. But where it does hit the road is with like people 
how they imagine the spirit is working in them Mm. such that grace against nature would feel more supernatural Mm-hmm. And grace perfecting nature would just feel like you were living a natural life, and it just turned out that the Holy Spirit was doing these things you didn't even know it. It's you know what I mean. Yeah. So what I, I feel like is with 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 Catholic and Orthodox and some of these high church Christians that believe in grace perfecting nature, they just kind of live their lives trusting God, and they expect that everything that good changes in them is just from the Spirit. Mm-hmm. Whereas the charismatic person is like, well, this thought came into my head, and it never could have come from me, but like, and so therefore it was the Spirit. Why? Because the Spirit must work against nature like there's that's kind of how that works and so it's dramatic and it's revivalist i guess in a way you know mm-hmm. um have you has, have your views on that changed or are you just kind of like yeah it's not really a it's not really a thing because yes of course grace works against the nature of the flesh and yes of course grace works to perfect the nature of the image of god i mean it's it's not that complicated i don't think my views on that have changed they sound pretty similar to what you've just articulated. I think that when you I think that if you were to pick up your Bible and try as hard as you could to read it freshly um, you would find that 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 the binary between those two things wouldn't wouldn't be in the top 100 things you'd pick up um uh because it seems to me the thing that uh the new testament particularly is talking about much more when it refers to grace has to do with like the kindness of god and and god's self-revelation to us uh more about him and i personally tend to make the things about God, about me. And so, oh, well, how does God's nature here, uh, as, as gracious and propitious in Christ, applied by the Holy Spirit to the glory of the Father, so we can all sound good and Trinitarian, um, what's that mean? What's the cash value of that for me? And um, uh, I'm, not, I'm not sure that that question is what the New Testament's directly answering a lot of the time. Um, it seems to be more like the New Testament saying, uh, hey, God's doing this really cool thing. And this mystery that's been hidden for ages is now revealed. Come check it out. Watch, look at what God has been doing and how you can be part of it. And so like, yeah, absolutely. Grace perfects nature in some sense. And yeah, absolutely. We have to beg and plead with the Holy Spirit and be attentive to him. And there's probably a whole third or fourth thing that I'm not even aware of. Um, but I guess part of my part of the, the reason I keep studying the Bible is because I kind of want it to do stuff to me more than I want to know stuff about it. Like I want it to, I want its weirdness and, and the shape of it and, and how it is arranged and the weird words it chooses um, that don't make sense in my, you know, 2020 Western uh, imagination to like, to be part of what messes with me. Um, and I think maybe the, the, the failure of theology for the last couple hundred years since it got real academic, it got very German once then it got very bad um, uh, is, uh, is that th- those are we're, we're trying to we're trying to map a whole way of thinking on the Bible. The Bible's like, no, <laughs> and it just won't do it. Um, it. It's like putting clothes that are too small onto a person who is too large. It's just I mean you can try and I mean they'll go on in some way, but they're not gonna 
it's not going to wrap around the thing quite comfortably. And that, that's kind of what it feels like. That's what modernity feels like. And that's certainly what postmodernity feels like when it tries to approach the Bible. And the thing that I'd love to do, and I can't, I guess this will be the thing that I want to do for the rest of my life is let the weirdness of the Bible um, reshape me instead of the reverse. Our guest today has been Adam Avery from Aletheia Church Boston. His latest book is Stop Taking Sides. It's available for $16.99 on Amazon right this moment. His last book was The Art of Rest. For those of you who are not participating in that and enjoying God's Sabbath, uh, also available on Amazon. These are all reviewed at four and a half stars or better. And then actually his first first book, Life and Doctrine, is basically an apologetics-based explanation of Christian doctrine for somebody who doesn't know anything about it. And it's actually sure. fantastic. It's uh, it is also, like it. it is. It's really, it's a great, it's a great because I, well, I, well, here's what I love about it, is it's a, it's a intro to Christian Christianity book. Like it's, it's for people that, yeah. like, have been led to Christ at your church. But there's mm-hmm. a ton of apologetics in it, like the mm-hmm. rationality of the Christian faith, offered like really readably. You know what I mean? But you also get the the doctrinal stuff, and I, I think it's a really great tool for that. So thanks, man. Anyway, buy his books and read them and profit from them and so forth. Yeah. And if you leave a good review, God will bless you and make you healthy, wealthy, and wise. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, thanks for being on the podcast and talking with me before. Also, um, the uh, series With God is available on the Aletheia Church Boston website. So you could check out that series. You might find it really helpful for uh, building a faith that sustains itself in Christ, like knowing how to live as a Christian and believe God in such a way as to to grow and be able to sustain in perseverance and love um, at times like this or at any time in your life. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, Adam thanks very much thank you thanks for listening to this episode of the Engage and Equip podcast if you have a podcast idea or a question you'd like answered on the podcast send us an email at podcast at highpointchurch.org you can find more episodes online at highpointchurch.org slash podcast You can also find us on most podcast apps like Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and Overcast. If you are listening on a podcast app, hit subscribe to get notified of future episodes. We hope this episode was helpful to you as you grow in becoming a more substantive disciple and a part of the local church. If this episode was helpful to you, rate or review us on Apple Podcasts or share this episode with a friend. Those are some of the best ways we have to reach new listeners. Until next time, thanks for listening to this episode of Engage and Equip.